0: As a writer, it is your duty to sort of show the reader, hopefully, that the suffering isn't the worst thing, that it is not avoidable.
1: You're listening to WERA 96.7 in Arlington, Virginia, and streaming on WERA.fm. This is Real Fiction. I'm Lori Messing-McGarry. Our guest today is Alexandra Fuller, the author of Light Move Fast. The book presents a portrait of her father, Tim Fuller, an Englishman who moved his family to Zimbabwe when it was still the white-ruled country Rhodesia. Alexandra Fuller is well known for her debut memoir, Don't Let's Go to the Dogs Tonight, which introduced readers to the world of white settlers in Zimbabwe and Zambia and the Rhodesian Bush War in the 1970s. In a tapestry of five memoirs, readers are taken to remote places in southern Africa few travelers have visited. Travel Light, Move Fast is published by Penguin Press, an imprint of Penguin Random House. This extraordinary story is an examination of loss and resilience. And in typical Alexandra Fuller form, there is a singular blend of raw grief, humor, and poetic language. She is on national book tour and joins us today at Arlington Independent Media Studios. This is Alexandra's first visit to WERA, and we're so happy to have you here. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, your father, Tim Fuller, is a towering figure in your memoirs. He fought in the Rhodesian Bush War. He raised a white family in white English family in Zimbabwe and eventually became a banana farmer in Zambia. So for readers who have been on this journey with you, the opening scene of Travel Light Move Fast is a little disorienting. Your father was ill with pneumonia in Budapest, Hungary. First question, why why was he in Budapest? My father loved Paris.
0: Um, I think it was his first, you know, he grew up in England and he instinctively hated England, which I find fascinating to instinctively hate your motherland. But he came from a very cold, aristocratic family um that yeah, with the sort of dysfunction of of sort of wealth and inbreeding and the crisis of expectation that, that there was no way he could reach and so you know in typical that sort of sti- time I think and class he was packed off to paris for his year abroad where you sort of was supposed to sow your wild oats where no one understood english and you could get away with being you know, sort of terrible person. And he loved it. He loved Paris. I think he got a sort of first taste of freedom there, his first taste of freedom from that kind of gloomy, claustrophobic 1950s English boiled cabbage um, kind of dystopia that happened after the war, this great kind of depression that enveloped England. And so Paris for him was always this gleaming, um, kind of destination. And he he took us all there. He, he took my mum there. He took me there. He threatened to take my sister there. She refused because he had incredible energy. I mean, his idea of trip to Paris was r- racing you to the top of Eiffel Tower with a bottle of champagne and a bowl of cherries. Um, and he never had any money. I mean, that was the other crisis of our entire lives um, or, or opportunity, he would have said, which was that we were always sort of Almost always um, broke, uh, and somebody told him that Budapest was the poor man's Paris, and so um, he was trying to misspend the remainder of his youth ever since he managed to survive turning seventy. Um, and I think on a whim, took my mother to Budapest uh, as a treat, which is very Tim Fuller. I mean, it's extraordinarily typical of him. I had no idea they had gone or were going. I mean, it wasn't as if they communicate these essential things to me as their daughter. Um, partly out of the terror that they would end up in one of my awful books. They began to tell me less and less about their lives. And then a friend called me and said, your father's dreadfully sick with pneumonia in Budapest and it doesn't look good and your mother's not coping, which in fact she is coping. It just doesn't look like coping from the outside. She's coping magnificently and I sort of detail the ways in the book, but I think she copes, if you're her daughter or in the family, you see, oh, this is what copings look like. But from the outside, even if you're a friend, there's this sort of horrific amount of drinking that goes along with her coping. My father would say, well, some people have more to cope with than others, and they need to drink more. And so I was called upon to sort of be the steady hand. Or was my mom says, you're bossy.
1: You come over here and help. You were able to translate what was... Revealed to you over that phone call and you knew kind of what they were envisioning and what you were potentially likely to encounter when you arrived in Budapest.
0: Right. And I think, you know, after years and years and years of I've been overseas now in the States for half my life and half my life in Southern Africa. And I think where the translation comes in is having sort of lived over here getting these frantic phone calls from home. Oh, dad's been, you know, carjacked and sculpted and he's got malaria and mugged and shot and arrested and put under a mango tree. And I mean, just on and on and on, things that would have killed any ordinary man. I knew he would be okay. But once he got pneumonia in Budapest, I thought, ah, it's the ordinary disease that will take him. And so I found him in a crumbling communist era ICU in the middle of Budapest. Or as my mother kept saying, you never went anywhere near Buda. It was just pest. And, you know, in the in the middle of a heat wave, in the middle of the refugee crisis, the, the Syrians and Afghanis coming through in 2015, that hot, awful summer of 2015 that I think was the precursor to everything we're in now.
1: Well, I'm glad you mentioned that. The, the refugee crisis was at its peak when you arrived in Budapest and it's painted... Vividly in the opening of the book. And you're no stranger to the plight of displaced people, but this had to feel a bit surreal when you were making that daily commute from the hotel to the hospital and seeing these kind of waves of despair and grief and displacement.
0: What? It doesn't feel did surreal. Did it to feel
1: m- like that when you were walking through it or was it a little bit removed? No, it felt incredibly familiar.
0: I've spent my whole life in the privilege of a white skin. You know, which gives you a passport that very few people acknowledge or admit that if you have a white skin, that is a passport to privilege protection. Um, And so my whole life I've lived through watching other people be displaced, watching, you know, for example, I mean, really one of my earliest memories, and I write about this and don't let's go to the dogs tonight, is watching displaced people desperate um, for their land who have been refugees in Mozambique across the border from our farm, returning from Mozambique to their homeland after the war and settling on our farm, on what we considered our farm, and what they considered their land, with full expectation that this is the land that they had fought for, that they had been in refuge, waiting and dreaming for, and my mother attacking them on horseback and, and
1: noticing that discrepancy. One thing that stayed with me after reading it is that your father seemed to have a little bit of a revised perspective on his white settler status. And there's this really funny moment in the book, you describing the television set in your parents' home. It's under a dog hair covered blanket. It's not used much. It's an old set. And he had this to say. He said, I didn't realize what an effort it is to stay ignorant. You can't look anywhere without accidentally seeing the news. What is your impression of his new outlook on smoking? white settler status as he got a little older.
0: Okay, I don't think it came to him the way that we would think about it in this country. He didn't sort of go out and search, you know, a health guru or kind of educate himself in any way. I think that true, I mean, I know that what happened to him, and it's part of why I wrote this book, was that the losses he encountered, which are inevitable losses of a life, um, and especially when you start out with that much privilege and then are determined to stay um, and watch your quote-unquote gains, ill-gotten or not, dwindle, it does something to the ego. It essentially sort of, uh, it, it dissolves you. I mean, you come out, like he did, come out to Kenya with this entitlement that I think was very British, that, look, we own three-quarters of the globe. We can sort of behave how we want. And staying there taught him that wasn't true. And I think his sort of greatest erosion of that, it was an erosion. It wasn't, it was, I mean, I think the thing that we don't realize about political change is it doesn't come because somebody looks at you and says, your politics are rotten change. I mean, that does nothing but entrench you in your prejudice or whatever. It calcifies your beliefs into prejudice. It happens from life. <laughs> life is the great teacher, he had lost three children. He had lost farm after farm after farm because of, you know, either politics or... And the the great gift he had was he never blamed anyone but himself. He never he never became bitter. That was his absolutely one, you know, foundational belief of himself was that bitterness was the thing that you avoided at all costs. And to avoid bitterness means you have to erose, erode your own ego. I mean, otherwise you just... There is way to go, but bitterness, if you look around and go, well, these, this is an accumulation of losses rather than, God, I've had this incredible, colorful, vibrant life I've been allowed to sort of experience. To go and bend a knee to a headman as a white man erodes that whiteness, you know, the white privilege immediately. Um, and to be granted this land and to start again just with a sleeping mat and a mosquito net and two donkeys. Um is the kind of necessary humiliation that made him truly, I think, larger than life, spiritually expansive. He never would have said this. He would have fainted if he had heard me say this about him. But it is, in essence, what he became. The less of him there was, the greater he his sort of consciousness was.
1: That is fascinating. Did you find that the community at large, the other sort of farmers in the area, adopted a similar kind of mindset? Or was Tim Fuller a sort of exception or a leader in that perspective?
0: Neither. He just was. And the other... There, I mean, so the other residents of that area, especially when my father started out there, there was a mission hospital run by some Italian nuns, whom my whom my father uh, claimed were the mafia on the run because all the nuns <laughs> had moustaches, according to him. And there were a couple of safari lodges, sort of. You know, scattered about, but but difficult to get to. I mean, the roads are impossible. You can get maybe by river of the rivers up, but not of the rivers down. And so the his neighbors were sixty thousand Tonga villagers living around him, and so they were an example to him, not the other way round. And that, I believe, is what expanded him. I mean, I think white supremacy, if nothing else, is an amputation. I mean, what one has to do, the sort of neurosis and uh, fear that you have to keep cultivating in yourself in order to be a white supremacist. I mean, even you yourself know that you've put yourself up on this pedestal and with one swipe of a blow, you're going to be taken down at the knees. But to be on your knees is to be in a place of humble acceptance and then you are lifted up by the people around you. My father much admired. Having spent 50 years of his life among um, rural Southern Africans, he much began, much admired uh, the indigenous communities around him and learned from them. And he thought that being able to suffer well was one of the greatest gifts a human could give him or herself, and that the greatest teachers of good suffering were rural Southern Africans. I mean, as he said, "poor you know, poor chaps have had 500 years of it." He said, "The English don't know how to suffer except the Queen, and the Italians cry for their mothers, and the Americans you can't tell because it's all so loud."
1: We're we're talking with Alexandra Fuller, the author of "Travel Light, Move Fast." Um, I'm always interested in the structure of a book. And in this case, the memoir has an epilogue. And the final pages reveal something unexpected. I had to revisit everything that I read after I I finished the final pages. There are layers upon layers of unimaginable grief. Um, can you share what happens? And ultimately, how did you decide to order this book? Was that your decision and editorial decision there's a timeline of events but can you share with us a little bit about that
0: so I was about a third of the way through writing the book um you know writing is all I do and I've been really lucky that all I've had to do is write books I don't you know have another sort of job that's it which is I think incredibly fortunate in this day and age um, but it does mean that a book needs to be written. You, I can't stall out and say, well, I'm going to take a few years off from this thing. I mean, I suppose I could, but I don't. I think I'm unemployable at this point. A third of the way through this book, my son, my 21-year-old son, uh, 400 days ago today actually, uh, died unexpectedly in his sleep of a seizure. Um, and it, of course, put me into an even deeper cycle of grief than the one that i was already in um, and gave me an understanding of these cycles of grief and this is something i hear in the states a lot that oh it's so individual but we think everything's so individual because we've lost touch with community now in southern africa we would say this is so community (laughs) this is so collective you can't do this alone and my closest friend um From Zambia reminded me of the ceremony of Mzimu, which is that when someone dies, especially a child, and I've remembered this my whole life, you'll be going about your day and suddenly you'll hear the pierce of a woman ululating just this cry. And then the voices of crying and you know, oh, there's been a devastation and we are all devastated together and it is impossible not to feel what is going on when you hear that ululation. Now here, death happens very uh, sort of privately and weirdly. And uh, there's this way in which, you know, my son's body's sort of taken off under wraps of blankets. And But I went with, I lay with him for as long as the coroner would allow me for those many hours. Um, of course I was with him as he got cremated. I mean, I was with him when he came into the world. Why wouldn't I be with him when he went out of it? And then after that, as, thank God for my Southern African upbringing my indigenous and, and all the contact I've had with Indigenous people, I understood that my work was allowed, to allow him to become an ancestor, which meant that I had to move through my, I mean, you, one has to move through one's grief. And you can't do that alone. And this idea that it's so individual, it's a lie. That's why there's stages of grief that are very, you know, that are very recognizable. It doesn't mean that you go through the stages of grief neatly. Um... And that's, I think, where people go, it's so individual because it doesn't follow some sort of formula. But the truth is, as an indigenous community, they give you a formula because you are so at a loss. To lose your father is to lose your history. To lose your son is to lose your future. In indigenous communities, people know this.
1: That is perhaps one of the greatest lessons in this book. We don't have a great vocabulary for grief and loss. There's an awkwardness that... Occurs when someone, even a close friend, loses somebody. We just don't really have a process, a formula, as you say.
0: No, and I think in that I mean, certainly in the Jewish community, I have uh, there seems to be a lot more structure around it. But I'm, you know, in the Episcopalian community, you just dropped on your head. There aren't even prayers for you as you go through, you know, your year of grief, or this is what you can expect. Pe- people just sort of exp- oh, Time will heal everything, but that isn't true because I've witnessed. What's happened to ungrieved grief? And I think that if you look around, we're a country in ungrieved grief. That I think it is your civic, your, it's your duty as a civilian of the world to do your grief properly. So that you aren't stuck in denial. And I think what we see in this country, stuck in anger.
1: Well, getting back to your, South, uh, your southern African roots, let's talk about the concept of routine in navigating loss. Because this struck me as really... Um, important I mean in Zambia farm life kind of forbids introspection there are as you have written snakes and bees and monkeys and a kind of harsh exoticism that just prevents exuberant exoticism exuberant exoticism that consumed your mother's days and then a world away is her daughter In Wyoming, writing another awful book about (laughs) the things the family doesn't want to share with the world. So we have polar opposites. Nicola Fuller needs the daily ritual of running a farm. And you are an artist who needs the daily rigors of writing. And these are running at cross currents in your family.
0: To some degree. I think it's mostly, I mean, my mother's such a a writer. My sister's an artist. My father's a farmer. It's not that different. I think it was really what I was writing that I had done this thing to expose mostly the racism. I mean, they could really care less how much everyone knows they drink and sort of carry on in that particular way. But I think this is the great secret amongst white settlers is that the racism is something that you know of course you know that you're ashamed about um, and that I think requires silence and inter- a great deal of introspection to repair to acknowledge not just to fob off and say well I'm not a racist now I mean one needs to look at sort of how you were raised, that that initial insult. So she's
1: not objecting to your routine of writing. She's objecting to the content of what may, may come forth. Okay, that's an important distinction. Well, what I also remember from reading all of your books is that a change in scenery is um, key to kind of moving past a tragedy. And even today, you, you move into the mountains. You have taken your, I think you still live in a yurt, if I'm not mistaken, in Wyoming. And you talk about and I've heard you talk about the process of going into nature, the water, the mountains. Is this what is helping you move through your stages of grief?
0: As I ran toward my son's body, I already knew I was lucky. That he hadn't died incarcerated, he hadn't been, you know, a victim of police brutality, he hadn't been died, he hadn't died of a drug overdose or all of disconnection. He died loved and fully in his bed. And I also knew I had the tools to survive this. I mean, in that very moment, no, that very moment you want to follow him, of course. But my father had taught me if you can get beneath an open sky, particularly at night, that you're never alone, the moon will befriend you, the stars, the universe, you are a part of it, you're not separate. And I think this is the great mistake that we make when we even have these conversations in the, U- the US that you are alone, that this is very individual instead of saying, but you're never alone, You're under the universe. How much less alone could you be? Um, And so instinctively, I dragged, I have an old sheep wagon that I write in that's got a little wood stove in it and a bed and a table that I can write on. And I dragged this thing up into the Wind River Mountains because you're not going to sleep for the first few months after your son's died. I mean, you stay awake waiting for him to come home. Um, And the loneliness is beyond existential, But eventually that loneliness, as as the ego erodes and sorrow does its job and grief does its job and gets you sort of down to the essence of who you are, the thing that supports you is this kind of sense of the universe constantly kind of flowing over you and through you. Um, And that, I think, was a great lesson from from my father um, and from Southern Africa, and one that I don't know that... I don't know another way to have survived this. I mean, and and another way to being in a yurt, it doesn't matter that grief is overtaking You still have to chop wood and carry water. I mean, you can't just sort of collapse physically. You have to participate in your own downfall. (laughs) I mean, you've got to keep going just on a very physical level.
1: And I think in that way, it was my version of, of the routine of the farm. I've always wondered why readers are so enthralled by your family and I, I wondered if I got the answer from your mother. She said something really hilarious. It was in reference to her admiration for the author, Paul Theroux. And Paul Theroux writes travel books to explore poverty and dislocation. And she said, I find it very interesting when other people subject themselves to hell on my behalf. It's very refreshing. Did you all suffer on our behalf? No.
0: No. I mean, I don't. I think that we are all... Listen, you're born with a human condition of suffering. That's just it. That's the itch, right, that we're all trying to scratch. And we do it in more or less violent ways because it is so deep in us. And it's it's, it's a basic pain. And it comes from, you know, I, I I think it's the same in every human. It's a fear of abandonment. It's a fear of being incomplete or not enough. And suffering is the thing that tells you you are enough. You are complete. You're never abandoned But the suffering itself reinforces you're abandoned and you're incomplete. And so there's a way in which I think, you know, melting through that, if you can, gets you down to the essence of yourself in which you are in touch with whatever you want to call it, God, the mystery, my son, you know, all of it, the universe. And I think that as a writer, it is your duty to sort of show... The reader, hopefully, that the suffering isn't the worst thing, that it is not avoidable. I mean, you're suffering.
1: We're quite allergic to it here in this culture. That doesn't mean you're not suffering. Then you're suffering from allergies, or the suffering never ends because we don't we don't process it properly
0: or embrace it, right? And so then we're continually displacing our suffering. And I think that was one thing that hit me sort of really solidly was, oh, there is no way to not do your suffering. There's only ways to displace your suffering onto other people, which is what we see in our political system today, all this sort of yelling at one another back and forth. I mean, that's just a display. I mean, it is all just a displacement of one's own suffering. And you you can't put it on the other party. You can't put it on the other. It's yours to digest and generate.
1: I have one last question for you. Given your upbringing in Southern Africa, uh, and your career as a writer, are there authors that informed your understanding of the African experience? I mean,
0: begin with Chinua Achebe and that great, uh, you know, the Antils of the savannah, things fall apart. And he was really the grandfather, I think, of, of black African literature. And growing up in Rhodesia until I was 11, the Rhodesian Literary Bureau, as they called themselves, which was basically a censorship um, of of... The government ensured that we could that the only literature available to us had been written by white people, and so at the end of I mean, there was a lag time between the war, and you don't just end a war and change a whole people's mind. But being a voracious reader, I could never find the voice that I was hearing around me. I mean, white settlers don't write in the voice that I hear bouncing around me all the time, and they the way, especially Mashona. But it's true wherever I've lived in um, Southern Africa. But the Mashona are artisans, they're farmers, they're artists, but and storytellers. I mean, I call Zimbabwe the Golden Triangle of of writers, and so and Chinua Chebi is from further up um, Nigeria. But what I got in his writing, and I mean, he was in the initial one, but then after that, when I started to explore other Southern African black writers, it was it informed the way I write. Um, because finally I found, oh, ha, this is the voice that I've been listening, this competitive way to tell a story that the only other people I know who have it are the Irish. And I would love to see that an Irish or oral storyteller, and I'm a Shauna, oral storyteller, go at it. Because there's this way in which if you're not interesting as a storyteller, you're like, they just leave you in the dust, the next person goes. So I think that 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 those those writers were the ones who set my voice free
1: yes and there is a light humorous touch and um, despite the the heavy issues that we walk through and travel light and move fast and just to cycle back for a quick second to Tim Fuller he offered a way of looking at things he said if things aren't okay this isn't the end in the end everything is okay do you believe that's true yeah well then there we have it <laughs> <laughs> We have found closure. (laughs) Our guest today is Alexander Fuller. Her latest book is Travel Light, Move Fast, published by Penguin Press. Thank you so much for coming to the program. Thanks to everyone for listening. We're on Wednesdays at noon on WERA 96.7 FM, streaming on WERA.FM, and you can find us at realfictionradio.com.